The best bitch. It's the second rate show. Juggernaut of a podcast. Where we watch the flop. And see if we like it. Hello and welcome to The Best Bits, second-rate show where we flashback to a random week of release and give a second chance to a film we didn't see the first time. This is Will and as always I am joined by Kevin. Hello Kevin, how are you? Hello Will, it's uh, lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're obligatory, Kevin. You're obligatory. I can't not have you. Yep. <laughs> if I didn't have you, it would be just me. The wheel spun the last time. And the year that I got was the wonderful year of 1995. Mm. What do you think of that? I remember it well. 1995. Uh, I'll tell you that, as we usually mm-hmm. do, I'll give you a little bit of trivia about what was happening in the world. Oh, great. The number one song in Ireland and the UK was the Out Here Brothers, Boom, Boom, Boom. Oh, <laughs> you're taking me back to discos, Kevin. Oh, God. Yeah. Grace, go on. Um, I was at the disco for this. Go on. In the US, it was TLC with Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls. So I think that would have been coming uh, quite soon to hear, and that would have dominated the charts for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, Celine yeah. Dion was on the radio everything but the girl Coolio Oasis uh, Boyzone um, T- TLC as I've said Mariah Carey but uh, in the news you had OJ Simpson he was on trial for murder in the US on TV people were watching The X-Files Frasier The Nanny uh, Hercules The Legend's Journey people were playing video games like Mortal Kombat 2 The Jungle Book Donkey Kong Country children and teenagers were watching television shows like Fireman Sam uh, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Rocco's Modern Life I don't know that one and Sister Sister which I do remember ah that was great that was so much fun grunge was popular uh, movies that people were going to see this year were The Craft and Clueless and uh, in Europe there was war raging uh, between Bosnia and Herzegovina so yeah uh, interesting time in history and in that particular time in history, I was firmly in my teenage years. I was thinking about girls, thinking about how I was going to get girls, why I wasn't getting girls, and, and also how I was going to get into a nightclub and pass for 18. I think that was my biggest concern around this particular year in my life. Um, I remember the X-Files being so big. I'm, I think I was in second year. I think so. I hadn't, my junior suit would have been 97, I think. Because my leaving trip was 99, so walk it back. Anyway, nice. uh, but that was, a, uh, again, another hot summer. I just remember being out all day long uh, from like nine in the morning to like midnight and sitting on the benches of um, the, the park that is now gone, unfortunately. And which park? The park that was outside my place in Cork. So oh, it got okay. knocked down and it became... It became the Blackpool Bypass. So, bef- oh really? Yeah. Bef- oh wow. Before that, there was lots of trees there. There was a little uh, courtyard that we used to um, play soccer in, and there were there was there was a oh, god, what was it called? The small field, I think it was called, or Pope's Field, maybe. But it was just a, a whole abandoned area, which is now um, the Dunn Stores in Blackpool. But it used to be, wow. there used to be a complete like waste ground and we would just go there mountain biking and building camps and copping off with girls and, and <laughs> trying to uh, smoke our first cigarettes and drink Dutch gold. 
So yeah. Good times, Kevin. Good fucking times. In our Joe Bloggs jeans. And arguments about Blur and Oasis. I was firmly in the Oasis camp at that particular time. I was firmly in the Blur camp. I thought Blur were awesome. I, I changed my opinion in years later, right? Really did. Kevin, I'll give you a recap of what was happening at the box office, in the US box office at that particular weekend. The weekend we're at is the weekend of July 13th, 1995. And in the top 10 of the US box office that weekend, at number 10 was Judge Dredge, the Sly Stallone film directed by Yaman Cannon, Danny Cannon. I saw it on video. Number nine was Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie. Still have never seen it. At number eight was Batman Forever. Saw it in the cinema. Yeah. At number seven was First Night. Number six was a new entry that weekend, The Indian in the Cupboard, which I don't think I've seen, but I can remember the visuals of it. I remember the uh, the the movie magic type of shows that were showing you how they did the little Indian in the cupboard, the sort of the, the, the oversized sets and the little um, green screen effect of putting the little miniature... Indian? Did a little miniature Darth Vader in that set as well. I remember there being a Darth Vader somewhere in the corner going, oh my God, it's got some Star Wars in it. That's got to be cool. Yeah. Never seen that. Star Wars, I mean, I've not seen it. <laughs> At number four was Disney's Pocahontas starring Mel Gibson, and which I have seen. What I remember from that... At number- oh, I must have been quite young because what I remember from that was I used to walk up from the U-Club up to my nans and constantly on the radio was... Uh, Something da 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 that was actually number five. At number four was Species, which I know I've seen, but mm. I don't really remember that much of it. Natasha Henstridge is one of the all-time beauties, I think, uh, in movies, especially in that film. Dodgy visual effects. At number three, we have a new entry, and it was nine months. The Hugh Grant rom-com with, I think... Julianne was, Moore. There you go. And um, was Moore. it Danny DeVito? Was, uh, there was somebody... Was it Robin Williams? Robin I Williams, that was it. He was the, the obstetrician or whatever it is. Have you seen that? Nah, I wouldn't watch that shite. We could have, we could have, this, this could have been our pick for this particular episode. At number two was Under Siege 2, Dark Territory. Steven Seagal was back again. I was uh, pissed off that they didn't bring back Erica Eleniak. So I, damn I right. Did Tommy Lee Jones come back? He was killed in the first one. <laughs> I was assuming he wasn't killed. And at number one that weekend, we had an absolute belter of a film, which was in the top spot. And it was Apollo 13, an absolute cracker of a film, a film I still love to this day. Based on a true story. Really? (laughs) I thought it was all fictional. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Uh, Yeah. yeah, So, But Will, I think we need to explain then what film we're doing, because you didn't mention the film that we're going to be revisiting. No, because the film that we are revisiting opens that weekend, but it opened outside of the top 10. It was a little indie movie called Living in Oblivion. And I think this is a good time to roll the trailer. I've loved you from the moment you met. Then why didn't you tell me? We were working together. I didn't want anything to interfere. 
Today I'm not going to settle for okay. This is a big scene and I'm not leaving till we get it. Whatever it takes, Nick. We're here for you. You're a great director, man. Your films are totally whack. I'm excited to be working with you. You were really great in that Richard Gere movie. I'm ready, Nick. Right now we're making a fucking movie! Action! I had this dream last night. I was on set. Everything was going wrong. And no matter how hard I tried to keep things together, the more they just fell apart. You know what that dream was telling me, Nicole? That I just have to roll with it. Booms in. Nobody drinks the milk. <laughs> What's gonna happen next? Everyone just relax. Nick, Nick, Nick! What? I feel like shit. The thing I'm doing feels fake. I can't the only place I've seen dwarves in dreams is in stupid movies like this. Call me a cat. I'm gonna have a heart attack. No, 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 you're not. If you do, we'll save it for the end of the scene, okay? <laughs> I want to add a caveat to our uh, premise for this show because it begins with our theme music saying, well, we watch a flop and see if we like it. And I wouldn't class Living in Oblivion as a flop because it is an art house indie movie and it's uh, a cult film and it has a very devoted following. So I would say that this film wouldn't count as a flop. But I will say, go on. <laughs> I will say that it is inspired by a flop. So oh. that's our sort of way around it. Okay, okay. I think we 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 are always going to have to play it fast and loose with the terms in which we play this game. And this film made it was a, it's a low budget. It's a true low budget indie movie. It had a budget of under half a million. But it grossed in the US box office at the time, I think 1.1 million, which is, you know, it made its money back, I'm sure. That's a hit for what it is. It's a hit. I I, I would call it a hit. And it's gone on, as you said, to be uh, a true indie darling and a cult hit. I'll give you a quick synopsis of the film. Very, very quick. I'm not going to get too bogged down in this. It's a film in three parts. Okay, very clearly, uh, very clearly defined in three parts. And it's a film about an independent film production with a director who's played by uh, Steve Buscemi and he's trying to make his first feature and in this production everything that can go wrong does go wrong he has a rebellious catering crew who refuse to replace spoiled milk he has actors that are flaky and uh, and, he, and it's almost impossible for him to take it an unspoiled take so tensions between the lead actress Nicole played by Catherine Kinner 
and actor Chad, played by J- J- James LeGros, are also rising because they've slept together. And this contributes to many problems on set. So as money and time run out, Nick is struggling to get the, his film made, and not only his film, but to just get a simple scene done. And that's really the setup of this film. And I mm. watched it for the very first time today, Kevin. What? Had you heard of this film before? Of course I've heard of this film. I knew it was an indie okay. darling. I, I really knew. I, I was aware in the 90s getting into cinema. That was the time, you know, where all, you and me were getting into cinema. We're aware of uh, the, 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 the indie movement in America. And this was one of those titles that always popped up on lists of films that I should watch if you're getting into cinema because it was kind of considered to be cool. I just never got around to seeing it or finding it. How about you? Were you aware of this film? I was aware of it through a mate of mine, Lisa McInerney, who uh, is a Patreon and uh, is a very talented author. Uh, check out her books, uh, Lisa's books. This is a film, and I'm quoting Lisa here now. She says, I would die for this film. So I knew of it because of her, and I even used it in a script that I wrote once, which didn't get produced, but anyway. So this film spoke to me in that regard. But I even used it in a script because she loved it so much that I had a character reference it as one of her favourite films, and I'd never seen it. So I only know of this film because of its connection to Johnny Swade, the Brad Pitt flop movie, which Mm -hmm. inspired the director to make this. And also inspired the look of Johnny Bravo, the animated character. And that was all I knew about it. I first heard this film about 10 years ago, I would say. Had no idea what it was about. I did not know it was what I would consider to be an arty version of Noises Off meets Truffaut's Day for Night. (laughs) It's... You know, where the play goes wrong and a fly on the wall look into the struggles and the aggravations of making a film. So this was all brand new to me. I had no idea that the film flips between dream sequences and, well, stress dreams and black and white and colour. I didn't know who was in it. I had an inkling that Steve Buscemi and Peter Dinklage were in it, but I didn't know that one of my favourite actresses of all time, Catherine Keener, was in it. Yeah. So this was a total discovery for me. Yeah, same. Shall I give you some trivia about the film, just to get us kicking off? As in, talk about the Do, filmmaker, Tom DeCillo. Fascinated. Yeah, Tom DeCillo. Is it DeCillo or DeCillo? It's DeCillo, because I actually looked it up and it is definitely DeCillo. And okay. he's an interesting character. And it's character. Tom. Or maybe it's Mott. <laughs> I'm not really sure. No, it's Tom. It's Tom. Tom. <laughs> It's Tom DeCillo is a writer-director of this film. And as Kevin just said there, he had made one uh, feature before this. It was uh, a film called Johnny Suede starring Brad Pitt, which I'm pretty sure I saw on video when I was far too young. And it didn't stick with me, but I just remembered he, he, the visual of... Yeah, he looks like Johnny Bravo. Johnny Bra- His pompadour hairdo was very, very striking. Did you know that, though, that Johnny Bravo was based on the look of Brad Pitt in that movie with huge quiff? I did not know that, but of course he was. Absolutely, of course he was. <laughs> he had an awful time getting Johnny Swade uh, released, produced. It was a very low-budget movie. His producers did not want Also starring Catherine Keener. Absolutely. Catherine Keener and Tom DiCillo have collaborated on most of his films. The producers didn't want Brad Pitt 
to star in Johnny Johnny Swage because he was a nobody and he had no star power whatsoever. In 1991, he was a nobody. The film was shot back in about 1989, 1990. The, oh, right. When was, when was Tom and Louise made? Tom and Louise, I think Tom and Louise was 1990 or 91. And, you know, people are screaming at me right now. I'm going to have to Google it. Because uh, all I know... I, I had no frame of reference about the, the, the pop culture at that time um, to do with movies. But in retrospect, I do remember hearing that when Brad Pitt turned up in Thelma and Louise, mm-hmm. he became a sensation, an overnight sensation, where it was like immediately went from, who the fuck was that? To on the cover of every magazine, a sort of a, a sex symbol, and his career skyrocketed from that mm-hmm. one uh, sequence that he has in Thelma and Louise. This film came out, they shot this film, sorry, they shot Johnny Swade around 1990. And when Miramax bought it around 1990, Brad Pitt was a nobody. So Harvey Weinstein sat on the film for a year and a half, Johnny Swade. And then... He did that with so many films. And then when he released it, it got a very limited release. He didn't know how to sell it. And the film was in cinemas for two weeks and it just died. And Tom DiCillo thought his career was done and dusted. He then went on, he he had another project he wanted to do, which was a script he had written called uh, Box of Moonlight was the title of it. And it was, it was he was getting producers ready. He These was are such find, 90s indie titles. Isn't it Box unbelievable? Of Box of, Johnny yeah. Swade, Box of, living in oblivion. It's guys. And once Johnny Swade flopped, there was no way he was getting that made. And so the, what happened was he went to a, a friend's wedding and he had just heard that, you know, he wasn't getting financing. He was really frustrated and he was really downcast about the industry and what was happening to him. And randomly, an old school friend, an acting school buddy was at the same wedding and met him at the bar. And Tom DeChillo was drunk off his tits at this stage. And the, his acting buddy said, oh my Allegedly. God. Yeah, well, no, I think he said it himself. He says it himself in an interview. Um, he said, oh man, you love fair play to you. You got a film made. Isn't it great? Like, you know, lights, cameras, action. You did it, man. You did it. And Tom DeChillo was just like, I'm going to fucking tell you what it's really like. It's fucking shit. You know, and he's like, what's it like to make a movie? And he says, you got fucking actors, not like, you know, not, you know, not being able to focus on a scene. You've got shit going on behind you. You've got cars honking out and set. Making movies is fucking shit. And he started just ranting about the realities of making a film. And in doing that, it was like a, thun- like a lightning struck him. And he just went, holy shit, I think there's a, there's a, a film here. And so he went off and over the course of three days, he wrote a short film or a film that he thought might be a feature, but he wasn't sure what it was, uh, which was going to be Living in Oblivion. Turns out he wrote the film. He wrote this film in three days. He wrote the first section of the film in three days. It turns out the first part, the first, the first, the very, all the black and white stuff. In the yeah, the, the film's clearly in three. In okay. Three, so he wrote that section yeah. in three days. Right. Okay. So I have a question for you. Yeah. Because I've not, the, the way that we do this is I don't research anything about the film that, that Will has chosen. Um, so I'm not too well versed in this film. But I noticed that the quality, the visual quality of the film jumped up several levels after the, the sequence that 
plays out and it is fucking brilliant and it really does encapsulate exactly what it's like to try and collaborate with people and get something done when you are you're up against time itself and you're burning money even if you don't have money you're burning money yeah and uh the sequence that happens with catherine kina and his mother the older lady he is yeah, who's, who's playing a character in... The, these are all dreams that are sort of bleeding into into the reality of making this film. But when that sequence ends, and I think it's about 20 minutes long, it cuts to uh, the next day when Steve Buscemi wakes up. So the entire opening was a dream. And the visual quality goes up several levels. It goes yep. from like 16 mil up to 35 mil. There's a story behind it. The story goes on. Because it's a fascinating uh, bit of behind-the-scenes trivia as to how this film developed. So, by pure chance, when he wrote that script, Catherine Keener was staying at his place at the time. And he wrote it with her in mind. He says, I want you to you know, be in this, be this film. She read the script and she thought it was absolutely brilliant. And she, she sent it to her husband. She got her husband to read it, who was Dermot Mulrooney. And she, he said, I they want to... They were married. They were married, yeah. They were married at the time. He wanted to be in it. He's the... Only, he's the yeah, he's, he's a DP. cameraman. He's, in he's a cinematographer in it. Yeah, he plays yeah, Wolf, the Wolf. cinematographer. And he said, "I want to be. I want to be in it. I'll be the director. Not only that, but I'll give you five grand to help make this film." And uh, Tom DeChiller went, "No, I don't think so. I think I have someone else in mind. Uh, but I'll take your five grand. Thanks very much. And I'll keep you in the film somewhere. I'll find some place for you." So they, within two weeks, they they managed to <laughs> gather together a budget of thirty seven thousand. And they shot the film in a, in a like a proper indie manner, where they were just like it was very scrappy and whatnot. And they shot the first that first part, the, the twenty minute version of this film, that first section. Oh, so that like a proof was the of concept. It wasn't even that was what the film was supposed to be. That was it. And when they when he finished the movie, he realized as in it was a short film. But he he intended to make a feature. But when he when he had it shot, he realized it wasn't a feature Wait, film. No, I'm getting confused. Yeah, I'm yeah. getting confused now. He in, he shot. So they shot a lot more than what we see in the opening segment. No, he literally wrote the first segment as his film. He thought that Which is might 20 stretch. minutes long. Yeah, it, it ended up cutting to 20 minutes long. He, is, he yeah, thought okay. he might get a right, feature right, right. out of it, but it turned out that he, it okay. wasn't a feature. And when he right. tried to get distribution or take it to festivals, festivals didn't really know what to do with it. As a short film. As yeah, but it was in the it, it, but the, the running time was thirty minutes, so festivals really didn't know how okay. to book it or how to promote yeah, yeah. it. So, but everyone who was on set between Steve Buscemi and Catherine Keener and every all the cast and all the crew, they loved the experience and they knew there was something really genuinely fun and funny and interesting about this film and they all said you have I thought it was great yeah you have to go and make more you have to extend this you have to try and you know develop this out and so oh he, I get you that's get where you. he took so he, then he wrote two more acts and yes added onto it so that's why the opening is explained the way as a dream sequence yeah Yes, that's exactly right. It. So, how long between shooting that sequence and the like? When did they come back to do the rest of the movie? There was a big problem between there was a big problem between between shooting your first section, which was had a budget of thirty seven thousand, to the whole budget and movie, which was half a million. So that there's a big financial gap to bridge there. So you had to figure out how to get the finance to do it. So 
yeah. Steve Buscemi went on pause. Steve Buscemi's career was he was on the uprise at that stage. Of course, he had he had Reservoir Dogs behind him. But it was ninety five. So it was dogs. before yeah. Armageddon, before Con yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was still he was still in the indie run. He when was, was looking, Fargo ninety six. Ninety six. Yeah. So yeah. he needed to get a job. He 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 went on pause to keep. He kept his hair long and he didn't take a job for eight or nine months and held out for Tom DeChillo to get the money to shoot the rest of the movie. Tom DeChillo wanted to do it as you know, keep, be an auteur and try and. Re- try and maintain as much creative control as he could and he was just about to uh, sign a deal with this producer who was going to be really dictatorial about casting decisions and creative notes on the script and all that sort of stuff <laughs> that doesn't sound like a producer at all yeah when this is the mad serendipity the person remember I told you that he got the idea at a wedding way back he got yeah. the idea for this at a wedding the person's wedding he was at was uh, the, the woman was a close friend of his and her husband and they rang him and said at the time he was talking to the producer and said we've come into some money and we love your film and we want to invest the money that we've inherited into your movie and which was they, what 500,000? 500,000 was the total budget of it so maybe it wasn't 500,000 but it was hundreds of friends. thousands yeah it was hundreds of thousands so they financed the, sh- the making of the film. And not only that, he cast them in the movie. That woman that got married, she's the script supervisor. You know, she's daydreaming about Chad, the, 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 the handsome actor. You know, The girl with the red lips. Yeah, the script supervisor with red lips and the glasses. That's the, that's the woman who, that's the friend who got married. And her husband is Speedo, the sound guy. You know, the guy who's uh, the sound engineer who's at the desk. So they're husband and wife and they're the people who financed the movie. Wait, the dark-haired guy. The, yeah, the guy. He's uh, he's a very familiar actor to me. I've seen him in lots yeah. of things. They were they were actors. I'm pretty sure at the time. So they so they were the people who actually financed the movie. So anyone who was in the movie actually wow. paid to be in the movie. Everyone's in the movie paid to be in the movie, which is nuts. That's cronyism for you. There you, you know, go. This whole business, it's all yeah. rigged. It's about who you know. It's all about and, who you uh, know. You need wealthy friends. <laughs> yeah. So they paid. So the people who made the movie actually financed the movie. It's incredible. But they so got it a shot. Truly independent. Truly, truly independent. Absolutely, absolutely. And it feels like that. It really does feel like it's an indie movie. They made their money back though. If it made a million at the box office. Yeah. Yeah. It absolutely did. Definitely. So how did? I don't know if we have to get into it. As we said already, the film is clearly broken up into three parts. The first part is shot and the, the in the three of them feel very uh, uh, avant-garde, I would say. The, the, what, I'll, what I'll say, right, is the opening scene I really enjoyed because it felt almost like it was a, a showcase for Catherine Keener where she is an actress uh, acting opposite uh, an elderly lady who uh, they're playing mother and daughter uh, I loved all the, the sort of the moments of them driving the set and, and talking about their characters and trying to get in character and doing renditions of the scene and everything getting in the way where it was like the boom guy is dropping the mic in and what have you yeah. but there's that there are moments where it becomes quite rote where they're doing take after take after take yeah. and then he asks yeah. for a rehearsal but where they can sort of stage it a little differently and the elderly lady who's playing Catherine Keener's mother strokes her hair 
yeah. and it brings back a sense of memory of her own mother. And suddenly the scene transforms and you get to see what a great actress Catherine Keene is. Yeah. And you're looking at Steve Buscemi, whose heart is breaking because he knows that there's no one at the camera, there's no one recording it. And yeah. so you've got this incredible scene that's unfolding. And then Dermot Mulroney returns and they go for another take. And it's again, it's flat. It's just, it's not connecting. <laughs> yeah. And so that beautiful moment is lost forever. And I thought, yeah, that is, that is exactly what it's like to make a film. Yeah. So frustrating. And yeah. And then they come back for the next day. And I don't know whether any of that was real. I guess it was all just a stress dream. It was all but a stress dream to, uh, because he does say, he said, I had the worst stress dream. And he recounts, he, he, he recounts the yeah. details of that first part. So it was a stress dream. But you know the guy who then plays her scene partner? So Catherine Keenan is playing opposite somebody else and it's um, a guy who's a bit of a himbo and it is James Legros' character. Chad. And yeah. he is... Or Chad Legros, sorry. Uh, no, sorry. J- the no, real- Chad is the character's name. Char- Ch- Chad Palomero is the character's name and James Legros yeah, is the yeah, actor's yeah. name. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that this movie was an entire reaction to his process of, of dealing with Brad Pitt and uh, the producers and, and the, the constraints of Johnny Swade. So I, I feel like this is a very veiled um, caricature of Brad Pitt and who he was at the time <laughs> with this over-the-top, um, egotistical whorebag of a, a movie star. A real prima donna. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Who, just, who, who I love in the second section. How I, I love the process. I love the, the, how it illustrates the process of filmmaking. How they start off with a scene. We see how it initially is conceived in their first take. And slowly, through little tweaks and manipulations, it starts off as Catherine <laughs> Keener's scene. And through manipulations of, of Chad, the, the prima donna actor, and his ego, he's managed. He manages to slowly turn the the, the scene to be all about him, and he changes the focus. And it's so subtly done, and but so funny. And I, I, totally I thought the moment it. where I thought the moment where he calls Steve Buscemi aside, and Steve Buscemi, you know, as a director, you're trying to be a dictator but also a diplomat, yeah. and, and you get to see the character wrestling with those two facets of corralling cats to make a movie. Yeah. Or make anything, make TV or, or what have you. He calls Steve Buscemi aside and he starts to to, um, to complain about Catherine Keener, who has starred in a Richard Gere movie prior to this. And some of the cast don't think she's up to snuff. And he is telling him that she needs to be fired, that she's no good. And Catherine Keener overhears this on the earpiece. And, um, and she says, when they come back from their little tete-a-tete, it's like, uh, you think that she... I suddenly got the, sh- the the willies and thinks, oh God, I'm going to get fired off this, off this movie. Yeah. So she's like, um, actually, I think that, that Chad has got a great idea and we should just try and feel it out and let's like improv and see how it goes. And and I thought, okay, that's an interesting turn for that character. And then, and then she completely decides to go off book and in character, she starts to insult the yeah. other to Chad where it's meant to be this sort of like um, romance scene without there she's extolling how much she feels for him and instead she's like you are a disgusting piece of shit <laughs> you are slime still, <laughs> he's still trying to say his lines yeah. I thought that was very funny um, you know there's yeah. another moment that I loved in that scene is Chad he, he's such a, 
he's such a, oh, a narcissistic uh, grab-all. He just sees things and he wants to take it. He wants to cover things. Like, for instance, Dermot Mulroney, the DP, he has accidentally, at the beginning of part two, he acts, he's in a relationship with Wanda, who's like the AD, I'd imagine, or the producer. And what, he's, he's got she's an... The AD, yeah. She's the AD, He's always shouting in a walkie. Yeah, Talking. he accidentally she accidentally nicks his eye, so he has to wear an eye patch through most of the the second half of the film. And when Chad's on set, he's just about to start the scene, and he sees Dermot Mulroney's character character is wearing an eye patch, and he goes, "Oh, I like that. I think I want one of those." And slowly, Dermot Mulroney loses his eye patch, and Chad is in scene wearing his eye patch. And the only way they can uh, that Steve Buscemi manages to get the eye patch off him off him is to actually call Chad away and say, Hey Chad, you know, I didn't want to say it in front of the rest of the guys, but it makes you look a bit gay. And so Chad goes, Alright, okay, I'll get rid of it. It's again No, he the- sees he sees uh Dermot Mulroney wearing it again and he's like, Oh yeah, you're right actually. It does. It does. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's like it's to uh, to not wear funny. but it it was you said that this film was, you felt it was a reaction to his experience of working with Brad Pitt. And apparently, Tom DeCillo has said, no, that's not the case. It, in fact, he offered this to Brad Pitt, and Brad Pitt was going to take the part, but he had already been cast in Legends of the Fall, and so he couldn't take the role. So apparently, it wasn't based on his experience with Brad Pitt, but it feels like it's based on experience with Brad Pitt. It certainly does. But, Kevin. So what were your feelings, your, your feelings while watching this film? Like, did you, as someone who's been on a film set, do you think it accurate, accurately represented that experience, we'll say? Yes. And so much so, it took me right back to my uh, college days when I did my first student movie, which was a mock doc called The Making a Scared Stiff about the creation of a horror film called Scared Stiff. And um, it was very much like this, where you had a director trying to pull off a very tropey sort of um, horror movie and the different caricatures of the film set getting in the way. And I found it quite relatable. Even though this film does look like a student movie at times, I find it in movies when they try to do adaptations of the movie making process they never get it right. And mm-hmm. just recently, you had the Judd Apatow movie, The Bubble. And none of that felt in any way representative of what it's really like to make a movie. And I know that that's an, uh, an exaggerated, um, satirical comedy that I really didn't like. But I can't think of any film that accurately depicts the making of a movie. Even Truffaut's Day, Day for Night, I didn't think it was accurate they exaggerate things to the point where it feels like it's divorced from reality Mm. and i'd love to see a sort of a a proper i don't know fly on the wall of making a film because i was looking at this right the reason i say this is that the crew weren't acting like they would on a real film set the ad is like got a walkie-talkie she's shouting into the walkie-talkie when everyone is like standing right next to her that's not gonna happen yeah but it's it's the sort of the facade of that's the character she's portraying so she's just gonna keep screaming into a walkie-talkie i don't know what i was saying well well i want to say you were talking about i asked you if it was accurately representing experiences on the film set and you said it, it did take yes back. and no and it did, for me, it did take me back as well. Because I remember 
being on like no budget short movie sets where no one had a clue what they were doing and it felt like that and i've also been on a feature film set and you see in a feature film set everyone is pretty much knows their role and it's pretty much locked in and professional for the most part it's very much like a there's military. no overlap no yeah. there's no overlap but on the lower budget stuff things are a little bit looser and uh, people really amateurish. don't know what they're doing amateurish and this film felt like it was more leaning towards the amateurish amateurish side of things a little did bit did it make you want to be back on a film set no it didn't uh, <laughs> exactly yeah neither for me but like oh god this hell. film uh, this film highlighted for me something that I absolutely admire actors for. And it, it particularly is highlighted in the first section where we have Catherine Keener and uh, the older lady, Cora, I can't remember the actress's name, but they're trying to pull out this, pull off the scene with all these things going wrong around them, like the boom shot, going, the, the, the boom dropping into shot and all that sort of stuff. And I always am absolutely amazed that actors can get into a scene and just switch it on just in a moment despite all of these distractions despite not having the the immediate reaction of an audience to feed feed their performance in fact it's the opposite that's around them they have like working they have people who are just looking at their watches saying I hope we get this on the can I hope you don't fuck up so we can move on to the next shot and all that sort of stuff so it highlighted for me how much I admire that I think one of the things that actors have to get control of in order to do their craft is being able to relinquish control entirely and to not get hung up on the ephemeral nature of performing when you're not in control of what the performance is going to be like. So if I was an actor, I would have regular breakdowns because I know that I would probably be so much better in rehearsal and then not be able to replicate it at all in take one and then take two is worse and take three is worse and then take four is fantastic Mm -hmm. and then take five is atrocious and I have no idea why four is better than five or or what's you know it's this sort of like dark art of um, creation and for me as a bit of a control freak that would set my teeth on edge and I would not uh, I would not be a good actor. And I think that great professional actors are able to control that within themselves and just yeah. have this very zen nature of, I'll give it to you and it's yours. Whatever way it turns out, it turns out. And and to let go of the fact that maybe you're the person you're performing against is is terrible in the take that you're great and then is great in the take that you're terrible. And they'll go with the the version where they're great because they're the the, the star or whatever yeah. um, there's a lot of politics and a lot of sort of uh, uh, hierarchy and, and political machinations that go on on film sets and yeah yeah I think you've got to be so zen to do that which is why I'm a screenwriter you, you you said the words that I was going to bring up next it was that this film really captures the politics of a film set and how once a film set is born 
a hierarchy a hierarchy forms and it's done through politics people know that there's a director and there's a DP and ADs but a structure is formed who's in and who's out who likes hanging out with who who likes don't who doesn't like hanging out with her, uh, who and if you the actors are so vulnerable because they have to be be vulnerable but they overhear in this film you, they, like Kathleen Keener overhears the script assistant and the AD kind of bitching about her off off camera and how you can as you said how how it's, you can stay sane in that environment I do not know I absolutely do not know and that was one of the kind of things I loved about this film is that capturing the ecosystem of uh, of a film set I thought it was incredible really was if anyone out there has not worked on a film set and wants to know what it's like just think back to uh, times when you were in school and you're given a group project and how quickly that can go south depending on the personalities of the people that you are grouped up with where it, it could be that you have to put on a presentation or you've got to do some sort of like art project and and somebody is like no I want to I want to do the border and someone else wants to you know fucking chuck paint all over it that's what a film set is like where you just have very different personalities very different disciplines and a lot of ego and a lot of pressure and stress and the fact that what you get on the day is what you get and that's the movie and Mm -hmm. in every other art form that uh, we have out there you get to perfect it and you get to show it when it's ready and in movies you just get to present the best version of what you got on the day unless you're Marvel and then you just keep shooting it until you know you have a version that you're okay with but in general terms like on our film on Grabbers we needed loads of reshoots we needed loads of pickups I should say we didn't get any of them so everything that you see in the film is what we shot at the time that we were allotted to shoot so when we lost something even something vital it was just gone the movie had to accommodate that and I remember being at the hotel bar with Paddy Easton who was the VFX guy and I was sort of as a writer you know you're there and you're you're, you are um, I think I was lucky in this regard but in general terms when you're a writer you're not really on set but I was there and I was helping to rewrite certain sections where it would get us out of binds because we'd lost stuff prior to that you know you needed a moment where somebody had answered a phone and they never shot the person pick up the phone so suddenly I had to rewrite another explanation for that crucial uh, exposition to be delivered yeah but Paddy Eason said to me that um, a really great script has got to be able to take uh, at least three or four cannon blasts and still be seaworthy. And he was trying to put me at ease by saying that it's taken one or two cannon blasts, <laughs> but it's still seaworthy. And um, because I was there going like, oh no, they've yeah. lost this, they've lost that, they've lost this. And that's the anxiety of making a film. And yeah, I think it's... I totally related to Steve Buscemi in this, or Steve Buscemi, as I think he pronounces his name, yeah. in this, where it's just, you know, he has a, a passion, and it's all reliant on the headspace and the abilities and the time allotted to you uh, of those that you're working with. Mm-hmm. And it's why I love the ending, where he realizes what he needs in order to, to make it, it work. Yeah, and it's it's it all clicks together because it's it's set up so even though the first part of the film was 
like the, the, the first half of the film was, was meant to be the film and then they wrote, he wrote these two extra sections but in actual fact those two extra parts make the first act work so much better because even in the first act it's all about him not wanting to compromise just not wanting to compromise and stick to his vision he's being very accommodating he's trying to be accommodating but he doesn't see it but he becomes the worst he becomes the worst version of a director he has um, he has an outburst where he basically just unloads on the crew and the cast and tells them what he thinks of them and this is after a a huge build up where he's not gotten a single thing to go right and it's not his fault it's the fault of everybody else around him and the incompetence of everybody else around him so it's understandable but you can't do that as a director I mean many directors have yeah I agree with you where he gets to at the end Yes. I think it pays off the flaw of who he was in the beginning. Yeah. And he's he he actually almost loses the entire production because he's unwilling. Not that he's unwilling to compromise, but yeah, he's been almost too too rigid in his thinking about the particular scene. And if he actually was a little bit more open in his thinking and looked at the opportunities and listened to his collaborators more and was true to his creative voice, he would have he he and when he does he eventually gets the scene which is great it's such a lovely ending i really enjoyed it what happens it. is his his mother shows up peter dinklage is in this his first he, screen his feature his first screen his, his screen debut peter dinklage he's very young in it uh, and again he's very good but he is uh, in a sort of a twin peaks dream sequence and uh, he just has to walk in and laugh. And he essentially just does the, the typical cliched thing of like, what's my motivation? Why should I laugh? Yeah. But he's reacting to the fact that he's in a dream sequence and he is a, a little person. And he says, you know, you only ever see little persons in dreams in movies. Who has a dream about a little person? Nobody. Yeah. I don't even have dreams about little people, and I'm a little person. And uh, I felt like that that was coming straight from the heart from him. Yeah. Oh no, he but yeah, he, he he actually gave that line. That's that's Peter Dinklage's line. He came to the director of and he said, "Why the fuck?" He said, "Why the fuck are there? I, I I'm 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 a dwarf." And this is to quote him, "I'm a dwarf, and I I've never dreamt of a dwarf." So why the fuck are they putting him in this movie? And I think he, <laughs> what what could have been a very what's the word politically insensitive take, which is basically, oh look, we've got the quirky dwarf in the scene to make this thing seem weird. In actual fact, I think they they they, they paid it off or played it out in a in a in a very clever way, where it's we have Peter Dinklage actually just w- walking off and saying, "Fuck this shit. This is bullshit. This is untrue." Yeah, that, yeah. That was, that was really good. But yeah, so Steve Buscemi's mother arrives and um, she seems to be a little dotty. She's the actress in the opening segment. So, you know, there's a, it's paying off that he was having a stress dream and he was collaborating with his mother. And his mother was the one who would say, I'm never doing another low budget movie again. Fuck this. So at the end, she turns up and she's basically compounding his stress. Imagine what it's like if your mother turns up at work and you're, you're having to like, and she's having not to like well. accommodate. <laughs> She's not well. She's she's liable to do anything. Yeah. And he's like putting her in a seat and getting her to sit there. And um, it's all going wrong. And he's not listening to uh, Dermot Mulroney's character, who's the DP, who really wants to shoot the thing handheld. He thinks it's really going to work. Yeah. And uh, Peter Dinklage doesn't want to laugh. He doesn't realize, he doesn't believe his motivation for doing that. And yeah, it's only when 
a mad accident happens, which is that his mother puts herself in the scene and suddenly everything becomes spontaneous and Dermot Mulroney shoots it the way that he has an instinct to shoot it and suddenly the whole thing blossoms and it works. And you get to see him let go of the rigidity of what he had written and think, actually, that really works. That actually really, really works. And I thought that was a lovely moment. where you, It sort of spoke to what it is about making a film, which is to let go and allow the, the, the muse to come in and see what happens. That's Be spontaneous. Let creation happen. That's exactly. And the, 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 the generosity and the gift of collab- creative collaboration as well and listening to your collaborators mm-hmm. and... Put, finding a way to put the ego aside and it's not until he actually gives up on the film just before that he's going I quit the film's done the film's done I'm out that's the that's when that's when the creativity muse comes in I think that's so lovely can I tell you a funny thing which you just reminded me of on that very first short film that I did which I was directing and um, I've only directed three short films and I've never directed anything since then uh, on that very first short film on the first day of shooting it Everything that could go wrong went wrong. And by the end of the day, we had a new actress coming in and her sequence was being shot. And um, it was about five or six o'clock. It was the winter in 2000, I think it was, or 2001. And um, I had sort of just given up. I just thought, it's going to be dog shit. It's not going to work. There's no point trying anymore. And the actress was uh, doing a sort of a VT intro to tell us what this short film was going to be. And she kept screwing up our lines. And I was, you know, at this stage, not reacting to it because it was just another accident that was happening. And I was like, that's fine. Just go go for it again. And she would do another take and it would screw up again. I'd be like, no, you're fine. Whenever you're ready, just go for it again. And... She eventually nailed it and she nailed all the other sequences and then she pulled me aside and she said, can I just say that uh, I was really nervous and the fact that you you didn't get flustered and you didn't get um, upset really set me at ease and I just wanted to say thank you for, for the way that you reacted and I thought in my head, I wasn't reacting because I no longer gave a shit but it came across, it came across to her like um, I was unflustered and Wonderful. it sort of in- gave her confidence and I thought that is the, the, the sort of the myth of being a director it's like Picard in Star Trek where he tells Crusher when she can read his mind and she realises you actually don't know where we're going do you you're just making it up he says sometimes as a captain you have to project an air of confidence even when you don't know what the outcome will be and, uh, yeah it's, it's a dark art making films it's fucking lovely and and that's I, I, I have to say, I, I, I love that little story and I love that it plays into this film because it's so, so true. You And you have to get to also get to a point where you just don't give a shit anymore. You just go, ah, it'll do. <laughs> it's fine. You know, there's a time where you can be a perfectionist, but also you have to be able to relate because otherwise you will go insane because you're never going to achieve perfection. You'll never achieve it. I have applied that to my writing career as well. There was a period, uh, I would say, about five years into it, when I got my big break where I realised that things were the dominoes were not falling in the direction that I wanted them to despite how hard I was working despite how much effort I was putting in despite you know 
me trying to replicate any other prior success I'd had. Mm. I'd sort of just accepted that I don't know anything, nobody knows anything, and it's not going to pan out the way I want it to. And I sort of had an epiphany, which was that I wasn't going to allow things out of my control to upset me so much that I would get into um, a profound funk about it. Mm. And letting go and, and feeling at that stage that I had given it my best shot and it wasn't panning out the way I wanted it to sort of freed me up to just enjoy collaborating with people. Mm. And then I ended up working with uh, a couple of friends of mine on projects where I wasn't getting paid a lot, but just working with them was so much fun that it sort of just opened me up to it's the it's the process of creation with others that can be the reward for doing the, the work that we do and not the actual finished outcome which I have no control over and never will yeah and uh, I don't know what it's like for you but that that to me I feel like is the message of this movie and yep. it's also something that I have discovered myself through trying to work in the film business my favourite moments in the, the making of my films have always actually have been even though the, the, the couple of them being animated features have been in the voice record where we have a script which we think is what it's going to be but you finally are collaborating with actors and you're hearing stuff coming out of their, you're hearing the lines coming out, out of their mouths and you have this moment where you go oh we have a chance to change this we can we, they, they can question lines we can we can we can work together and now we're seeing it kind of mm. come alive and be on its feet and that's a moment where it, it, you're seeing the it's a creative collaboration happening in the room and the adrenaline and joy that comes from that experience where it's not with an audience, it's you're collaborating with creative people is truly, I would say, addictive. I think it's an addictive thing. It can be incredibly destructive and damaging as well, but it's when it works, it's absolutely glorious and one of the biggest highs you can get. On my second short film that I did the following year while I was at college, everything went wrong, but on a grander scale. And this, the, the first film turned out to be, you know, relatively good for what it was. And, and it got into the Cork Film Festival and the audiences laughed where I wanted them to. And then we did the second one and it was a lot more ambitious and there was I was trying to do a lot more. And it really didn't work this time. And my favourite memory of that entire uh, production was after returning all the equipment back to um, the camera house and to the film centre what have you myself and my DP uh, um, my mate Stephen Barrett we went into Supermax we were absolutely utterly fucking exhausted like we were probably getting about five hours sleep a night and we were working like dogs all day long and your adrenaline is at like maximum and we went into Supermax. We sat down. We were both just hollowed out. And uh, and I said, I think it went well. And we, I swear to God, probably collapsed into laughter for a good solid 10 minutes, just weeping with laughter. <laughs> and it was one of my favorite moments of, of the whole uh, experience. And uh, it was only because I was working with a mate of mine who could relate to it and I got to share the experience of what went wrong so those are the things which I think are, are quite precious about collaborating with others to make something oh man oh man and bring you back to uh, uh, living in oblivion what if you were to pinpoint 
some of your favorite moments from this film? What would they what would they have been? I like the moment at the end. Um, you know, the technology in this film is from the nineties, so you know, they're shooting on film and they're they're having to get room tone at the end. And I do remember that even on our shorts where it's like everybody had to freeze and be quiet for thirty seconds, where the yeah. sound recorders need to get room tone. Yeah. <laughs> and they do that at the end of the movie where uh, all the adrenaline has no gun out uh, of the scene because they've just pulled it off and it's a wrap on the scene that they've been trying to shoot and um, and the sound recorder says everybody quiet I need room tone for 30 seconds and in those 30 seconds you get to see each of the main characters uh, with their own thoughts for a second and Catherine Keener you get to see that she is still as anxious as ever she's imagining herself as being a waitress back you know um working a, a, a job for tips where she used to be an actress. You have uh, Dermot Mulroney dreaming about, uh, oh no, is it him or is it the, the sound records? Is dreaming about uh, having a burger. Oh, that's, and, one, of the, that's um, one of the grips. That's one of the guys who's a grip. He's just dreaming about that perfect fantasy burger. fantasy is like having a burger. <laughs> and Steve Buscemi is giving an award, uh, is winning an award. And yeah. he's basically just telling everybody to stick it. And I thought he hasn't changed. So that was one of my... Uh, uh, favorite moments right at the end you know i i was going to you know what i was pulling up my notes and actually i love that moment too for a different reason and the reason i love that moment is because when you're on a film set there are these moments where everyone has if you're doing a take or you actually are trying to get room noise which is just basically get, get getting the fucking audio of the room Atmos. of silence yeah, yeah. just so, so you can lay it underneath but there's these moments when all this adrenaline is pumping and everyone has to go into silence and it's like a moment of prayer where everyone just has to just unif- in a, in a unif- uniformly just go quiet and stand still and not budge and I always love those moments where everyone is just stops almost like in connection yeah and also like in this church of filmmaking and it's I was like that's, that's what happens in film sets and everyone all this adrenaline all of a sudden is just dissipated in that moment and uh, I just thought it was a lovely lovely final moment to this film which is so pumped and charged of with adrenaline and frustration and angst and ego um, yeah I, I thought that was a lovely lovely moment it really was again it reminded me how great Catherine Keener is of an actress uh, but would you recommend this film Will? I think Holy it's obvious shit. that we both would oh uh, yeah absolutely. in actual fact I regret not having seen it sooner because we just did uh, in the last season did an episode on dreams and I would this so would have come up in that episode if I don't know because you know there's a lot of dreams in this movie and there's even a sequence where they're making a dream scene and that's quite fantastic how about you would you recommend this while they're pursuing the dream of making films so it's a dream within a dream within yeah. a dream yeah chasing a um, dream yeah I genuinely love this film it put a spell over me I sat down to watch it not knowing anything about it just that my mate Lisa considers it one of her absolute favourite films of all time has recommended it to me many many times and it's always just slipped my mind but after today when I said to her listen I've just watched it again or I've just watched it yeah. and uh, I thought it was cracking and she said I'm so pleased now you've got to go and get Tom DeCillo's book that's called Living in Oblivion and Eating Crow and it's about two quid. You can get it online. I picked up a copy today. And it's basically his diary of making this film, which is about making uh, the Living in Oblivion reaction film to wow. his first flop. So I'm looking forward to reading that. But I thought the film was stellar. 
you know what was a nice byproduct of this is remember I told you you had that script Box of Moonlight at the beginning well after this film came out he got to make Box of Moonlight the following year with John Turturro and Sam Rockwell yeah and he went on to make like about maybe four films in the 90s but then in the 2000s he started to what were they what were the films Uh, because I don't think I've seen anything he's done neither have I I'll tell you now the first one it was there was Oh, he was actually, how he started off, he was actually in the same class as like Jim Jarmusch and Spike Lee. So he actually shot a number of... Oh, God, that would really rattle you if you were in a class with two titans. But he ended up shooting a number of Jim Jarmusch's films. So he was on set with them. So after Living in Oblivion, he did Box of Moonlight, which people, the reviews are actually quite positive for it. And they say, if you like Sam Rockwell and John Turturro, it's well worth watching. He did another film. What are the reviews for this? They're obviously, they've got to be quite good. Oh, the reviews for this, it got, it's like 90, sorry, 80 something on Rotten Tomato. Everyone thinks it's a a very slight, smart uh, film that doesn't overstay its welcome. It's uh, basically everyone's just saying it's a it's a, a, a wonderful ode to, to independence, limited budget filmmaking process. So I think most people are in line with us on this. The other films that Tom made were he made in the Real Blonde, which is a film I haven't seen. He did a film with Dennis Leary in two thousand one called Double Whammy, and he was he reteamed oh, I think I've with heard of that one. he reteamed with Steve Buscemi in two thousand six with a film called Delirious. He made a documentary about The Doors, uh, which came out in 2009, called When When You're Strange. And then he, in 2014, he made a film that he completely shot and edited and everything himself called Down in Sa- Shadowland, which is kind of like a documentary about stuff that happens in New York, the New York subway station. And that was a completely okay. solo venture. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. If you haven't seen this film, I would highly recommend it. I think it was very good film, a very good you know, reflection and ode to the independent filmmaking process. It did. And I don't think you need to be into movies to uh, to get the most out of this. It just had a, a lovely 90s feel about it. It really is an arty farce. And it took me back to the heydays of Sundance. Yeah. So I think if you watch this in the Kino, RIP the Kino Cinema in Cork this would have been a magical experience so yeah I'm like you I wish I saw it sooner but I heartily recommend it yeah. it's a it's a great little uh, wisp of a film I think it's only 80 minutes long but um, you get a lot out of it and it's very funny it's very funny I don't know if we've said it enough this film is a I laughed out loud several times in this film yeah I'm trying to get you to watch Noises Off which is one of my favourite comedies I will and if you were to combine uh, Day for uh, Night, which is the Truffaut film, with noises off. As I said at the start of this, you'd get this living in oblivion. So if you like either of those, you're going to like this. Kevin, who would be your MVP for this film? Catherine Keener. Oh wow. Okay, yeah, she is fantastic. I was going to say Catherine Keener as well, but I got to give it to Tom the Tom the Chillo as well. I think Tom the Chillo. He wrote directed this. He did a great job mm. and I'm just giving it to him because he actually followed through. He It's his own thing, completely his own thing. He got the finance up for it and uh, yeah, I think it's a really... Fair play, Tom. Yeah, fair play to you, Tom. So I highly recommend that. So that should wrap up our second rate of uh, our, our this, this issue of the second rate show um, we should spin the wheel spin what are we going to get uh, what's, give me another year okay. and let's see what we can uh, 
on cover for the next episode and hopefully it's going to be another gem like this uh, I hope so too I am going to spin it now and we are spinning so it's spinning around now Kevin just in case you can't hear it on your end and the year you're getting Kevin is 1984 okay the year of yeah, one of the great years for movies with Gremlins and Ghostbusters and the Karate Kid. Ooh, yeah, Karate Kid. Yeah, nineteen eighty four has got a, a, a very good reputation. So I wonder what were the flops. Oh my god! At least there's got to be a lot of there's yeah there's so August okay there's going to be plenty of films there that we both of us haven't seen because we would have been too young to have caught a lot of those films when they initially came yeah. out. So uh, I, I was 24 back then. So uh, <laughs> months, 24 months, yeah. probably actually. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I enjoyed this heartily. I'm so glad that we found a film that um, I can strongly endorse and recommend. And here's to the next episode. So Absolutely. Back in a couple of weeks. Yeah, with another so, second-rate show. And listeners, don't forget to rate and review us. And if you are interested in more best bits shenanigans, join us over on Patreon. We have a lot of stuff going on yeah. there. So, yeah, but thirty extra episodes there, and we're always adding to it. And uh, join our Discord; it's great crack. Oh, that's great but crack for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And yeah, will thank you for suggesting living in oblivion. Hey, good luck, Evan. Mind yourself. Mind yourself, you. (laughs) I always do. (laughs) I always do. That was the end of the best bits. And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show. The full episode, plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. Mini bits. Another new episode. Of this Patreon podcast. Exclusive. The best bits podcast with Will and Ken. Bonus content for you, yeah. That's right, this is for you, not for them, just for you. The best bits podcast with Will and Ken. Exclusive content. You want the talking film section. The best bits podcast. Kevin, how are you? Hi, honey. How are you? Oh, you know, I've got this. I've got my corns sorted out. I went to the Chiraptus the other day and uh, she Your said... corn? Uh, my corns. Did you, ever get, did you ever get corns? No. Did you know what a corn is? Yeah, it's a bunion on your foot, isn't it? Yeah, like in between your toes and stuff like that. Do you, do you not wear any shoes like around the house you walk no, barefoot? I, I, I wear... No, it's the opposite. GA shorts. It's the opposite. I wear incredibly tight shoes. Like those Chinese women oh. who get their feet bound, who had their feet bound, like, you know, before the turn of this yeah. last century. And so they had incredible corns and bunions. This is a great opener for a mini bits episode where we get people disgusted. Squally, it's episode 73 of the mini bits. <laughs> I'm Kevin, you're Will. This is yeah. our Patreon podcast. Thank you to all our lovely patrons. Yeah. A few of you have jumped in recently. I don't know what we said. We try to goad people into joining up every single episode and then every so often it's like a lot of people join because of one specific episode and yeah. I'm like 
what did we how did we say it what did we say on that episode that's different to the other 270 episodes <laughs> maybe it didn't sound as desperate maybe we said don't jo-. maybe reverse psychology that's how we should do it reverse psychology don't join up to our patron don't it's <laughs> You don't des- everybody you, cancel. You don't deserve to be in this group. We don't want you. We don't we like don't the look of you. you. We don't we don't need anybody. <laughs> it's just us. It's absolutely just us. Hey, should we tell people we we did I don't know, maybe we shouldn't say it on mic, especially so early. We did an interview with the Irish Examiner last Friday. We did. Yeah. And uh how do you think yeah. I how do you think I did? I, I I think you did all right. Like you didn't interrupt me once. So I was <laughs> delighted with how I came across. But, you know, there's no sort of time limit on this. We don't know when it's going to get posted. One of our friends was saying, Kathy at the cinema was saying that their interview with, did they do the examiner as well? It was six uh, months yeah. before it posted. And, and the Guardian, I'm pretty sure. They were, they were profiled in the Guardian as well. Yeah, but we don't do any really promotion. Like nah. we don't do anything. Well, this is our first time getting any sort of like proper coverage, which is going to be mad. So um, uh, listen to all you listeners who have uh, found us before we explode. You're, 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 you're an OG. Bust. You're an OG <laughs> listener before Kevin starts getting gold chains from all his Patreon dash. I think I'm more of a silver than a gold. I think oh, yeah. my uh, undertones suit more silver. But, uh, yeah. I just want to die. Those are my Prince Albert. <laughs> Your hat? <laughs> yeah. I Speaking of, of which, I want one of those diamond studs in my tooth. That's all I want. So I can go bing whenever I'm on a call. Oh, uh, yeah. Bing. I usually just, you know, wink and like glitch. Yeah. Like starlight twinkle. <laughs> Speaking of which, I interrupted you. What, what, we, what, did, what did you want to speak of? Which? Start the time. Oh. I forgot. You may as well. It's just the timer. They, all, all these lucky loos are listening in and, and they're wondering, what are we going to be talking about? But we have to start talking about them after Yeah, we, we say goodbye. But look, I wanted to talk to you about, um, well, you've seen a few things. You've seen the new Godzilla film. Yes. I've seen the first Omen. Uh, I saw Scoop as well. That, oh, uh, we're looking Netflix forward to watching thing. that. We already see, okay. Okay. I'll save my thoughts. And right. um. What else did I see? I made notes, but sure. It doesn't Jeez. really matter. I think I saw it. And I was going to go through all the summer releases and see what oh, takes your fancy. Okay. Okay. I'm looking forward because I don't actually know what's what's on the horizon. So um, I'm Well, the Joker your... 2 trailer came out today. I saw it. Yes. I watched that. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of Chicago. Yeah. It's kind of like you see it's all very much in the mind's eye. It, they're calling it a jukebox musical. Am I right in saying that? I think you're right in saying that. So, look, hey, listen, uh, I, I actually, what it, what it did remind me of <laughs> was that I want to watch, rewatch The Joker because I saw it in the cinema and I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. It was a kind of a bold new direction. Uh, I'm just going to go cinema. back and watch the episodes from the Batman 66 show, the Joker episodes. Oh, yeah, that's going to be... Just to fill me in like on the lore. <laughs> get up to speed. Get you right up to speed. <laughs> And you'll be there going, where where are all the guys in the purple suits with the masks? Where when are they going to show up? And like it's you know, a bit of a weird time though, where we have the penguin TV show with Colin Farrell coming out, which is a totally different canon version of the penguin. Then you have this offshoot of Joker, which isn't its own universe entirely. Mm. Uh, 
And then you have the old Batman films that you can watch. Right. And, uh, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's just, I don't know. I'm kind There's of so many IP. But like it's this, just everywhere. What, well, what's happened is the world, the comic book world has very much entered the, the film world. It's where you could have different runs, totally different runs of a character by it's different insane. authors. And there would be totally different riffs on it and stuff. Oh, oh this is the thing. Kevin, so I'm only catching up on this. You mentioned it to me on a on a pod, on a podcast. Wait, was it on one of those? Uh, it was the last. Show? It was the last mini bits. Uh, you, you said everyone's describing stuff as insane recently. And have you started noticing it though? Only, only, only with people trying to raise you. That's the only type, only where place where I've noticed people. No, people under score are trying to every, raise oh you. Oh my god! Oh my god! I could start posting though, like, um, tweets, comments, TikToks. Uh, articles, anything insane is everywhere. This is insane. That's insane. It's insane. There was a festival just going on about this insane lineup. I was okay. like, oh, it's a mentally ill lineup. Okay, <laughs> it's just it's it's everywhere. And the other, th- do you know the other thing that's also bothering me lately? Wow. wow. And this has been bothering me for years and years and years. It used to be that everyone used to misspell definitely. They'd go defiantly. Okay. Oh, it's defiantly whatever. It would just they're morons. But no. <laughs> I just keep noticing everyone keeps spelling a lot as one word, A-L-O-T, a lot. Where has where have they gotten into their heads that a lot is one word? It's the same way that people will write every time as one word. What's the one that you've, you've pulled me up on a few times and I can't get it right? Compliment. Compliment. I can't, <laughs> but I can't get it right. It's like the you I. because I told you the other day. Yeah, and I went searching for it and I couldn't find it because I had to actually had to an, use it. If there's an I in compliment, it's yeah. I'm paying you oh, a compliment. That's a good way to remember it. Okay, good. And then compliment. I, I wrote that to you. But you did. And I went to try and find it because I was I found myself writing the word compliments. And I went, shit, Kevin. But, I, but you, you gave me a thumbs up, which meant in my world that, yeah, I read that. Thanks. But I did, right? I'm talking about a couple of days later when I was faced with the exact same hurdle of writing the word compliment, I went, okay, what did Kevin say again about compliment? There's an I and the E. What did he say? So I went searching for it and I found it, I think. And I went, oh, the I is paying me a compliment or I'm giving you a compliment. It's insane how little you can retain information. It's insane. (laughs) Come here, let's start talking about what we watched. Come on. Did you start the timer? Yeah, it's it's gone. It's ticking. It's ticking down. The world's going oh, to explode. You know, I have to put in the sound effect. I have to. I have to line oh. up all my sound effects. When you said start I have the timer, like, I have a whole it's... fucking. I have a whole soundboard. Here. Okay. Ah. Jesus Christ! Where's my fucking? What? Where's my ding dang ding? Here we go. The timer has started. There we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Right.